This episode of the Ed Surge Podcast is brought to you by the Elementary Education Program at Emporia State University. The Online Masters in Elementary Education Program at Emporia State is designed for career changers interested in becoming elementary teachers. Learn more at emporia.edu slash teachers dash college. That's emporia.edu slash teachers hyphen college. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and the managing editor of Ed Surge, an award-winning nonprofit newsroom. There's so much anxiety these days about what smartphones and computers and the internet are doing to our brains and to the brains of kids and students. There are all these think pieces in major magazines asking questions like, is Google making us stupid? We hear concerns that kids have too much screen time and how that might be a problem. Meanwhile, during the pandemic, many of us are on devices more than ever. And that makes questions about whether these digital tools have drawbacks for learning even more urgent. So what does learning science say about how tech is impacting things like human memory? And about how all this plays out in teaching? It turns out there is a researcher who has been working on that very question. She's Michelle M. Miller, a psychology professor at Northern Arizona University. And she's author of a forthcoming book, called Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology. The book is actually, it's still a few months from coming out, and the tentative subtitle, I'm told, is What the Science of Memory Tells Us About Teaching and Learning in a Wired World. When I heard about Michelle's work, I realized this was my chance to, to find out what neuroscience and psychology research says about all kinds of narratives that float around tech and education these days. Do learners really remember less since they can fall back on search engines? Do younger generations that grew up with tech, these so-called digital natives, really function better with machines than older folks do? And can tech be used to help boost students' memory of what they're taught? I connected with Michelle just the other day to ask her about these questions and more. I started by asking about what she describes in her book as almost a taboo these days against having teachers ask students to memorize material. After all, this logic goes, it's so easy now to just look things up on the internet. Do students need to fill their brains with old-fashioned facts? Partly it, it does spring from, I think, a very, you know, very positive development in the past few decades of a real focus on application, on meeting students where they are, and you know, being on this, this learning journey together, and on rejecting um, what's been called a kind of a banking metaphor or a container metaphor for learning, which is this, you know, really hierarchical, um, you know, the student has a deficit and all this great knowledge resides in the instructor's head. And I just, you know, they need to sit there and, you know, and receive while I give them my wisdom. That's great that we are rejecting that as a philosophy. And, we have a real issue and a real backlash against um, the, the culture of standardized testing and, you know, there's this kind of a mechanical high stakes um, set of, of things that are going on in K through 12. So by the time people get to higher education, the students themselves and the teachers as well have kind of absorbed this idea. And sometimes it will play out in the either or. The either or that I that I write about a lot. Um, you know, a classic, what I would argue is a false dichotomy of, well, do you want students to remember disjointed facts? Do you want them to be able to, to state things from memory? Or do you want them to be able to think? 
Do you want them to be able to be creative? And I just, I, I say yes to both. <laughs> yes to both. And this book and a lot of the, the work and the speaking I do with, with faculty as well has been in the exploration of how do we get to that, that great point of both. That, to me, I think is kind of the next stage of, of the philosophy, the, the development of pedagogy in, in our culture that I would like to see. Your book is titled Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology. And as I know you you know, there's plenty of op-eds out there and big take-out pieces on the internet that talk about, you know, is Google making us stupid and our technology is kind of destroying our ability to remember? And and you and I guess I'm curious, you know, is Google making us stupid? <laughs> well, I would say definitely not. And you know, for those of us who teach or are going to continue to teach online and use technology in our teaching, again, this becomes, a, you know, not just a matter for opinion and speculation. We're, we're pushing our students out onto the internet and we're saying you have to use this. So yeah, that would be a kind of a big deal if it were detracting from human cognitive abilities. And, you know, at the risk of being the, the classic academic, um, it's complicated, right? Uh, so there, yeah, there's an emerging research body, for example, on uh, sort of a, a dynamic of offloading. And I talk about that at a couple different points in, in the book. Um, it's the, the, This is very new science. It's not like we have a gigantic well of research to tap into, but there is some good work out there that is suggesting that, for example, when we, when we search for something, uh, when we have sort of an unconscious assumption that, well, this information lives out here and I can go get it, I mean, the brain and the mind are built for efficiency, right? And so the the mind and the brain tap into anytime there's a shortcut, the brain will take it. And so we kind of go, well, I remember uh, where I can find it, but I'm a little less likely to remember that piece of information per se. And so there's lots of different ways that that can happen. So, you know, aggregated over many pieces of information, many searches, it's possible that we, we do, you know, start to store a little bit less uh, in, in our brains and a little bit more out in the computing realm. Now, of course, as the study I'm thinking of, it's kind of interesting, though. They didn't take this, you know, kind of alarmist, oh, my gosh, look what computers are doing take. They kind of argued that it was really more along the lines of a continuum that the mind and brain have always been doing, which is social sharing of memory. So, you know, I, I won't carry all the information I'd ever need to know. I've got relatives, I've got friends, I've got people who I, I hang out with, others in my community who can be a repository for that. So they, they have that provocative idea. But, you know, again, very practically speaking, that's something that's going on, right? Um, on the other hand, there is such a wild over-application and over-interpretation of other research, especially having to do with learning and memory. Now, I, I'll, I'm going to put this one out to you. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a study that showed that uh, students learn more when they take notes on uh, by hand, good old-fashioned pencil and paper than laptops? Have you heard of that one? I feel like I have. It seems like something either we've written about or I read somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That... And, you know, it's hard to put you on the spot there, but it's funny. I, I, I've I, asked my students this um, in my technology mind and brain seminar where I have a, a lot of inspiration from, from uh, my own students. They, everybody's heard of that. Everyone has heard of that. And what this is referencing is a study done a, a few years back. <coughs> 
Um, it's it's got a catchy title, which certainly helped it kind of almost go viral <laughs> in as much as any academic research ever does. Um, the pen is mightier than the laptop. And, and it's a very well put together study. Um, and, you know, where they had people under controlled circumstances taking notes on a set of TED Talks as a rough analog to like a college lecture. That was the argument anyway. And then they looked at test performance. So if you gave people like a quiz, you know, what was in this uh, in this talk? And they found an advantage, especially for more conceptual types of questions when uh, the lab, when people wrote by hand rather than a laptop. And it was, you know, again, controlled study. Um, and I hope that nobody <laughs> turns off the podcast right now because many people, they go, that's it. I knew that handwriting was always the way to go and there's too much technology. And it spurred op-eds like you would not believe. This study is also in the academic literature, been cited over a thousand times. This is this was a big deal. Here's the here's the issue though. Uh, like any you know good science, um, they they had lots of limitations to that study, which the study authors themselves say, okay, you know, here's what you really can't take away from this. Uh, for example, the the laptops in this study were not uh, enabled to like enable web surfing, and so sometimes people will conflate that with, well, yeah, because you get distracted when you're taking notes on a laptop, and you certainly can, but that is not what that study is about. And more seriously, they ha there have been by now several major replications in which that one key difference, um, that advantage for laptop note taking, or sorry, <laughs> handwritten note taking, that doesn't it didn't replicate. And you kind of go, well, why? And you know, this is the thing: is that sometimes when there's an effect that is not really robust, it's like at all, it's it's really barely there. Um, you, you know, it's not going to hold up under repeated testing. And it, this just happens sometimes in behavioral science. And it doesn't mean that anything was wrong with the original study. And this is a good thing. We're always trying to replicate. We're saying, you know, in contemporary science, we're always saying, let's run it again. Before you remodel all of your classroom policies, <laughs> let's make sure this one did hold up. Now, other key things about the study did replicate. Um, people do tend to write more words when they're taking notes on a laptop than handwriting. And people do tend to score a little bit more poorly when they show evidence that they're trying to copy down verbatim, which is a lot of what the original study talked about. They said, well, it's not so much the laptop, it's that people, when they can verbatim transcribe, they tend to do that and it's a little bit uh, you know, less effective. And later, researchers also point out something I think is very important, which is let's not forget that notes, you know, serve a storage function. They're to go back and study. If you also remember and retain more because you took notes in a really kind of mindful way, that's awesome. That's But that's kind of frosting on the cake. That's not why the notes are there, and that's not the primary mechanism for learning and retention in a college course. So I think that it's an incredible kind of uh, case study and a cautionary tale for what happens when something kind of fits with people's anxieties about technology, perhaps, or their own preferences, and they completely run away with it. And you would not believe some of the misinterpretations, you know, let alone not knowing that there are these replications out there where this key thing didn't happen. Um, it, it, it's just pretty wild how people will run away with it. That's so, you know, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, the pen whether it's mightier than the laptop or not is not proven either way. In other words, like it depends on what you're doing with it. And, and this notion that somehow the technology is breaking our ability to learn it. It's you're just saying it's so much more complicated. There's no, there's no evidence for an easy answer on those things. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, and, and it just, it does make it out into the culture. And this is where I think, you know, really mindful teachers, the kind of people who listen to, to this podcast, um, we can engage at a higher level uh, with some of these things since we are the real experts in how people learn um, and, and hopefully not fall into like, for example, I, I, I you know, I was I was listening to a, a to an audio book, you know, it's great authors perking along. And then she substances, well, you know, how I succeeded when I went to the police academy or something like that. I copied my textbooks word for word. That's how I studied. And you know what? Research shows that when you write something with your, you know, you write it down on paper, research shows that you're going to remember it. And it's like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly the opposite of what all the research showed. It was about verbatim copying. So, you know, I, and that's a little bit more that, that I've focused on in my work, too, of like, yeah, these studies can be dense. Uh, there's the replication issue. There's methodology. Um, it's not that they're impossible to kind of digest and apply. Um, but I do feel like in, in cognitive psychology, um, I want to be part of the movement to, to putting the, to pushing it out there to people who can actually use it. And that does mean, you know, kind of distilling what it tells us and what it doesn't tell us. After the break, what are some practical things that teachers and any learners can do to improve memory and retention? Do you know someone interested in becoming an elementary teacher? Emporia State University's 33-hour elementary education master's program allows individuals to do just that, regardless of their background of study. The coursework is available online, and the clinical classroom experience can be completed at a placement near you, allowing you to earn a master's degree without changing locations. In as little as two years, Emporia students will not only have a master's degree, but they'll also be eligible for an elementary education teaching license depending on their home state's requirements. Send your paras, stay-at-home parents, subs, and anyone else who might be interested to emporia.edu slash teachers college to learn more. That address once more is emporia.edu slash teachers college. Now back to the episode. Well, yeah, let's get to a little bit of practical advice. So back to the first question on whether, you know, it's, so it's, you're saying it is okay to still have some memorization in the mix that that's not, uh, but to put, but it, it's not an either or, like you said. So what are some other, um, tips for instructors in, um, you know, in, in optimizing or changing their teaching practices so that people, um, so that students remember better? Yeah. So I think that, uh, first of all, being, being selective, I, I really, just uh, love to encourage educators to reflect on, okay, you know, just because something is a fact that was somewhere in the textbook and would make a really, you know, easy to write up exam question doesn't mean that that's something that students necessarily need to have and have down cold. Like I never have to pick up my phone and, and Google this one piece of information. So go through and kind of kind of say, okay, really, as a practitioner, um, as a you know a serious uh, uh, individual in this in this field that I happen to teach, um, or if it's a pre-professional or pre-career um, type of topic, what are students going to need to know when they graduate and go out into the workforce? So identifying those pieces, and then what you have to do is. Uh, take advantage of all of this great work that's been done to show that this doesn't have to dominate your course. This is how you get out of the either or. 
Uh, there's different ways. And what's really powerful, too, is when we let students in on the strategies, too. So this becomes part of their own metacognition. And so it's one, not everything, but one small piece of the learning how to learn that we all need to be sharing with our students all the time. So, you know, top among these is retrieval practice. Anything that I write is going to have something about retrieval practice. So and what is retrieval practice? What is for retrieval those who don't know practice? This term. Right. So, and, and, you know, sometimes it's sort of the, the newer term for what used to be called the testing effect, which is maybe a little bit less of a jargony term. But either way, um, it simply says that when we pull information out of memory in a, like an active fashion, right? Be, and this can look like a quiz, but it doesn't have to. There's lots of other sneaky ways to do this. Um, that has this incredibly powerful ability to fix information in memory. Um, and there's probably several reasons why it works, but we do know, and we here's where we, it's not one or two studies. We've got so many research studies that show this. And in fact, when I was in grad school, um, people were starting to discover this. They're saying, you know what? When you ask people to, to answer questions in like a memory quiz or something like that, that actually changes the memory itself. It doesn't just measure it. Wow, this is huge. We could apply this. Well, the thing was, before the advent of mobile devices and different kinds of quizzing applications, it was a little tough to really fully take advantage of that. But now it's a beautiful marriage of, of technology and, and learning science. So um, things like uh, there's gamified quizzes. Um, right now, kind of the leader, I think, among these is Kahoot. Um, but there's plenty of other ways to, you know, have students be able to get really rapid feedback and to take a quiz, not for the purpose of, oh, no, you know, here's another high stakes exercise and I stand over you and, and stress you out. But, hey, let's see what we got out of this. Oh, and by the way, this is going to pay off in terms of remembering the, the facts contained in this quiz. It's going to totally pay off for you. So um, retrieval practice is a huge one, um, probably really the, the biggest and most dominant thing. So seeing where we can um, infuse these. And there's actually a, a website that's just it's free and it's just really devoted to different techniques, different levels, different, you know, disciplines, how to do this. And it's called uh, retrievalpractice.org. I mean, how easy is that? <laughs> so finding ways to have that be a part of the learning of the class. So it's it's almost like you're you're trying to change the narrative a little bit on quizzes, right? Because a lot of students at all levels might groan when there's going to be a quiz because it feels like, um, you know, it's like that somehow it's a stressful or... Um, something you want to avoid, but you're saying actually that's where a lot of the the learning happens is taking a quick a quick quiz, right? At least the factual learning. And once you've done that, well, gosh, now we've got all this time and all this energy that we can then look at applying it because we're not you know frantically going back and saying, oh, wait a minute, here, what you know, let me get my phone. Where was this fact? Um, and you know, speaking to that idea of changing the narrative, especially around anxiety, I think that's so important. And you know. Uh, while most of my work does, of course, focus on the higher education component, there's a wonderful study I, I talk about in my book um, led by this, this rising star in the field of applied cognitive psychology, Pooja Agarwal. And she actually looked at, in a controlled fashion, what happens when you bring in more frequent quizzing in um, 
in a middle school or high school setting. And she found that students become less anxious <laughs> um, over time when they're exposed to more low stakes quizzes that are there for learning, not for, oh my gosh, your grade and you know your future and all that, that good stuff. And especially, you know, when I'm implementing this at the higher education level, uh, I really like to be especially transparent with students. And it's, it's surprising, a little transparency goes a huge long way. So, uh, for example, um, we have, uh, in some of my courses, I've had reading quizzes that are due before we're going to, quote unquote, cover something in, in class, you know, so chapter three is coming up, take the quiz first, and students will say, well, why have, why do we have a test when you haven't taught it to, and, and it's a great opportunity to spend five, ten minutes saying, hey, here's why, and because we've all done this, um, we can have this better discussion in class, and the way that I tend to structure those as well is I tend to make them repeatable and you keep just the highest grade. So it's like, well, that really gets across to students. I'm not going in one shot and measuring, oh, how'd you do? I want you to work at it. This is an exercise, the way you'd go to a gym. It's not, you know, a measurement or a snapshot in time. So by kind of marrying, you know, what I'm requiring, what I'm telling students and what I know from the literature, I do think that we can turn that narrative around pretty quickly. And students are incredibly receptive when you level with them like that. A little bit in your book, you talk about, um, you know, perceptions and narratives around generational divides um, when it comes to memory. Is is there really a generational divide in how we think and remember? Um, and if so, how consequential is that when it comes to learning? Yeah, and I, I think probably the most... Um, kind of high profile manifestation of that idea is, of course, the, the idea of the digital native, uh, that there are students who have used technology since possibly now, since they were toddlers, that again, we could never even have imagined uh, with people my generation growing up, I'm a Gen Xer, I'll just, I'll put that out there, um, that it's sort of, they're, yeah, they're, they're fundamentally different than us. And, you know, the whole question of psychological generational differences is, is a huge hard fought one but i can say in this one area of these cognitive processes probably not but the differences are probably not enormous and the story of research does tend to 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 show that it's it, yeah, it, it's hard to show that interacting with the technology has a, a deep and lasting and noticeable difference across domains with a few, you know, a few exceptions around the fringes. So I think that this becomes important um, when we're trying to make mindful decisions about incorporating technology into, into classes. Um, if you if you do uh, have these conversations with uh, traditional aged uh, college students, young adults, you'll find that there's a real range of how they even feel about their technology. Many describe themselves as not being good with technology. <laughs> They'll say, oh, I'm not good at that stuff. I want a paper book. I don't like, I don't like reading online. Um, and you might find your non-traditional age students saying, you know what, can I get that in a PDF? Cause I'd really rather use my screen reader when I'm commuting to, you know, listen to the reading. <laughs> so, so that's where we can say, uh, yeah, it, it really kind of don't, don't accept kind of, easier narratives about, well, young people are kind of this new species that's wired for tech. It, it, it's really not that way. And and also, as I've uh, talked about in my last book, Minds Online, as well, 
there's the practical question that we can really overestimate. I've been guilty of this before of saying, I'm sure they can all figure it out. You know, we're going to have this fancy, you know, uh, kind of collaborative annotation or a quiz program. They don't need help. Uh, they, they, they'll just pick it up. Well, no, um, that becomes a real issue. So, so yeah, I think both kind of in a big philosophical, what is happening to the human mind uh, stance and also that real nuts and bolts, what do I do in my class stance? Um, let's be a little skeptical of that idea. What do you think the biggest takeaway about what the science of memory tells us about teaching and learning is? Well, I do think that the biggest takeaway does come back to that dichotomy, that or, <laughs> that as we're also starting to see some emerging research showing that knowing more in an area it does go hand in hand with thinking more like an expert in that area. So really breaking down that idea and not being afraid. I think, uh, especially for, for faculty in some disciplines, I, I get a big like, thank you for saying that <laughs> when I when I go out and say, you don't have to be afraid to say, look, these are the things that I don't want you to look up on your phone. You really, I want you to know these things, uh, especially if you're talking to, to faculty, say, in, in anatomy and physiology, that's a big one uh, where, yeah, there's there's real intellectual and conceptual heft there, but there's also, there's, there's terms, there's relationships, there's being able to identify things visually that uh, that's that's part of it and that students can be that they can be very proud to acquire that knowledge um, it doesn't have to be this soul-crushing exercise students want to come away with hard knowledge and hard skills uh, in higher education I, I do believe that but please be selective and take advantage of everything that we know about how to remember things more quickly uh, and you know so it doesn't take over the course so have both of those things there set your standards you know set your sights high and take your students along and and have that transparency so that they they kind of understand where you're coming from i think you can really achieve um some some new things and set a really um fun and uh interactive classroom atmosphere too if that's your approach if you've got all of those different um philosophical and practical pieces in the mix great well thank you so much for for joining us today thank you it's been wonderful this has been the EdSurge podcast. Each week, we look at how education is changing. We have more ways than ever to keep up with the EdSurge podcast. You can sign up for our new weekly newsletter, where you will get notified every time we have a new episode, and you'll get more background and links related to the episode. As always, we hope you will subscribe to the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen. And if you can take a minute to give us a rating or a review, that really helps others find the show. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter, at J.R. Young. A special shout-out this week to Bonnie Stahoviak, host of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. That is a fantastic show. If you're not following that already, I, I will confess I learned about Michelle Miller's work on Bonnie's podcast. And she just has great guests on all the time, um, talking about teaching from her perspective as a, a college instructor and administrator. Music this episode by Josh Woodward found that on Free Music Archive. The track is called Memory Replaced. We will be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>